what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears. Welcome to the live WTF at LA Podfest 2015. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I say that because it's a habit. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck to talk about. It's not, it's, it, it wasn't a bleak day. <laughs> but maybe I can share what I, what I wrote on my phone. Like, I usually carry around scraps of paper uh, that I write on. And this is, like, I, I rarely write jokes. or, or not, I, don't ra- I rarely write things that are funny on my phone or on pieces of paper. They're important ideas that are very pressing to me in the moment. And uh, uh, there were two things that came up in conversation, and I, I thought I should write them down. The first being erratic apes cursed with consciousness. Um, which would be us, I think, is what we're explaining. And then uh, this is a fine way to open a show. It's amazing how easily we've all adapted to this utterly non-reflective but self-consumed culture. (laughs) Elaborate shallowness based on lifestyle choice and vanity. Mutated egos seeking recognition, calling that individuality. (laughs) And then the next line says, forget happy, I want to be chipper. Right? <laughs> Isn't happiness too much to ask for? Do you, I mean, are, are there people here that are capable? Like someone asked me, and this comes up a lot, you know, wh- what do you do that, uh, that gives you joy? And my response is always like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> what could that possibly mean? Is it like, do, do, you, do, do most of you experience joy? Okay, I asked the wrong crowd. <laughs> No, man, we're just, you know, listening to the things. <laughs> this, is like, this, is, like, this is what I, 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 have, I prepared for the, the, for the show. It just says monologue. That's underlined. And then, and then <laughs> these were the bullet points. Desperation everywhere. <laughs> Cultural starvation, deprivation. And then this one, I, this one deserves exploring. Indulging the talentless. Um... <laughs> Indulge that one? I got, you know, it's like I try to stay out of the fray. But, uh, you know, because there's such a hunger for content, morons are celebrated. Now, like, I know, like, the, if anyone's taking this personally, that's really on you. Like, if anyone in here had a moment where, like, I think he's fucking shitting on what, what I do. Well, maybe you should fucking reevaluate what you do then. Thank God none of us are happy because I, I think that the entire new media would collapse if people were like, you know, I don't need to, I'm not even going to go on the computer today. What? What are you, you're not playing along. So let's do some questions. I'd like to open with a Q&A because I think that would spark some excitement. There are mics set up, so I'm not fucking around. I'm going to bring my guests out in a minute, but let's, uh, let's do some uh, Q&A because I feel like that'll make me excited. So go to the mic, somebody with a question. Where are the mics? Here's a mic right here. That's it. Hi, Mark. Hi. Hi, what? Mindy. Hi, Mindy. What's up? Well, I was wondering how it feels to do um, a podcast outside of the garage. Well, there's less panic involved. <laughs> 
Like when I'm in the garage, you don't, you, I don't know if some of you know how, how honestly long it takes me to approach the garage. Like, <laughs> like if I have to do this monologue in the garage, it, it's a good, like I'll go, I'll set up the file, I'll label it, and then I'll go back into the house and I'll, and I'll prepare something to eat. And then I'll go back out to the garage and I'll be like, fuck, I need coffee. And I'll go back in the house and I'll make some coffee. And I'll maybe go listen to a record. <laughs> and, then, and then I'll get up from listening to the record and I'll be like, fuck, man, I'm so fucking tired of talking about myself. I might just fucking commit suicide on the mic, but then I don't know how people would respond to that. So... <laughs> Then I choose, you know, uh, kind of courageously not to kill myself in that moment because I have a monologue to do about whatever's happening in my little life. So then I'll go back out to the garage and I'll get on the mic and, and right before I start, I'll be like, oh, I think I'll play a little guitar. And I'll play guitar for a little while and then I'll, I'll set the levels for when I play guitar now at the end. And then I'll sit in there, yeah, after I play guitar and record a little, I'll be like, Why are, how come I'm not doing this for real? And then finally, like something will happen, something will pop into my mind, and lately it's been housework, where I'll be like, oh fuck, I just stained my gate. I got a monologue. So how is this different? I don't have any of that going on. Next question. Good question. I enjoy this. I feel like I'm getting happy. Hi. Hi, Mark. Did you write something down? No. Oh, you're, you're holding a book like it's... I am. Okay. Uh, a, a few years ago, you did an uh, interview with Greg Fleet, the Melbourne comedian, if you yeah, remember. Yeah, Greg Fleety, Fleety. And uh, you, you lent him some money <laughs> at a time that he had a heroin addiction. Yeah, at a time when he had a heroin addiction. Right. Yeah. And so this is his autobiography that he gave to me for free. So I was wondering if you wanted to return on your investment and take this book. <laughs> <laughs> You're offering me Greg Fleet's book Yes that, uh, be Outside of his knowledge To make up for the debt Yeah Of the $20 that he shot into his fucking arm <laughs> I spoke to him about it And he, he supported the idea Well I'd like to think that Greg Put aside my $20 for that meal We'd all like to think that <laughs> And I like to think it when he stayed in my house that uh, he just slept and that was it. But you know. But you were missing a television. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How's he doing now? He's doing good right now. Yeah. Yeah. But right now. I mean, read the book. It ends. It ends on. Uh, yeah. It ends on the struggle. Am I but, in the book? Uh, where he says that Marin, that sucker, like everybody else, <laughs> lent me twenty dollars that he'll never get back. Not specifically, but you know. <laughs> He says comedians, so, you know, you're in the bracket. Thank God we're, we all take care of each other. Mm. You know, what are you going to do when a guy needs money for heroin? I don't want him to get it from somebody who expects it to be returned. <laughs> I'd like it to be a charitable donation to, to, uh, to further exploration. What's up, buddy? How's it going, Mark? I'm all right. Hey, uh, I know you're a fan of records, listening to music on vinyl. I'm a, I'm a huge vinyl fan, so I want to know, what are you listening to, and what do you prefer, full albums, seven inches, ten inches, something like that? Whoa. Seven inches. It's a record size, not I'm a so, euphemism. I'm so oblivious to double entendres. You know, like I, 
I'm just sitting here thinking about records. The rest yeah. of you are like, hey, that's where I'm at. Ten inches. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like my cocks. Um, <laughs> no, no, because like I, the, the it seems that the higher quality equipment you have, the more you have to do. Like if I play a seven inch, that means I got to get up and take the needle off. Right. So if I play a ten inch, I'm sort of like, why didn't these guys make a whole fucking record? <laughs> and if. <laughs> If I play a whole record, I'm like, I can sit down and wait this out and then enjoy the music. What, what am I listening to? Like yeah. today, I listened to uh, Fairport Convention, uh, Legion Leaf, and I listened to, uh, what else I listened to? I just bought a batch of records. And like, I, it's weird because like, I, I, how many records does a person need? I, uh, All the records. I listened records. to uh, Donny Hathaway live, and I was not familiar that much with Mr. Hathaway, but thanks to my pusher at Gimme Gimme Records, Mr. <laughs> Dan Cook, who, uh, who, who kindly puts the guy aside a stack of 20 to $35 records that he thinks I'll enjoy. And he knows you'll buy. That's, is that a yeah. good enough answer? That, that's fantastic. All Thank right, you very much. Two more questions. I'm bringing my guest up. What's up, buddy? How's it going? Good. Um, cool. I just wanted to ask, you did an interview with Michael Are you Biglia. like some weird version of me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm your son, Mark. Is, that, is this happening now? Yeah. I always waited it for it to happen. Do you want to play catch? I brought a baseball huh? glove. I brought a baseball glove. Thought we could play catch, finally. Like existential catch or something that would be appropriate. Sure, man. I'm just glad all the hard work's done. <laughs> Looks like you turned out okay. You're tucking your shirt in and shit. <laughs> Go ahead. I just wanted to ask, uh, Pops, that in the Mike Brabiglia interview that you did a couple of years ago, he asked a question where you're like, he was asking, like, how do you feel like... You, you were talking about characterizations of, of uh, stand-ups and people that they p- sort of play on stage. And obviously, since the podcast has been going on for many years and you got the IFC, IFC show mm-hmm. and whatnot, like, to what extent do you feel like you have to play up the Mark Marinness? It's funny, my son is just as long-winded as I am. And... <laughs> You really got that gene. That's good. You should start a podcast. I bet you, you could confidently ramble about your cats in your driveway for 15 to 20 minutes. You're, you're asking me about like, how conscious am I of being a caricature of myself? Yeah. Kinda. Do you actively try to defeat that, or, or what's the deal, man? <laughs> Dude, I am so not real right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's all been a lie. The real me is crying. I just turned into Dave Anthony for a second. The, um... Get two, three. Yeah, really, he's not going to step in? That's amazing. The, um... That was, we just witnessed some real strength and fortitude on behalf of Dave Anthony. Not to somehow steal the stage. The, um... I don't. I, I. think that like what what's ultimately happened for me is like I. I think the conversation was around the idea of building your clown, which is some weird thing that I used to say that I still believe that whether you do it on purpose, like some people are, seem to be fully formed on stage as sort of a, a heightened version of themselves or something ridiculous that has nothing to do with them, but it's something that exists on stage. It's a persona that's generally based on some part of their personality. I never could quite handle that because I was so busy trying to figure out who the fuck I was that what. I think ultimately has happened is that because of the podcast and because of, of uh, a, a certain amount of, of pride and, and gratitude and self-esteem that seems to have happened uh, by doing something that people enjoy and that I like doing, I, I think I've become more myself. Now, 
which, which is all I really wanted to do. I was not looking to become some weird amplified version of me. But there are different, like my stand-up persona is really just me, you know, consciously trying to be funny. Uh, the persona in the garage is me, you know, trying to work things out out loud. And the character on the show is a very limited version of me that over two or three seasons we've realized, this guy doesn't do that. But I, but, <laughs> yeah, right. But, but I do that. It's like, yeah, but you're not this guy. This guy's, uh, uh, like, there, there, there's, uh, he's kind to me, but, but he's not really. So I, I think that the TV thing is a, the best example of me being kind of a character. Does that help? Like, I'm just happy to be closer to, to who I'm, I think I am. Now get the fuck out of here. Seriously. <laughs> I'm kidding. Thank you, son. Thanks, Good Dad. luck with everything. One more. Hi. It's a lot to follow your son, I'm yeah. just going to say. Um, over 600 episodes mm-hmm. in the can, mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you aware of the kind of history that you are filling in for people in comedy? Because I feel like whenever I listen to WTF, the comedians I grew up with and I'm very familiar with are telling stories about the silences and comedic history that people mm-hmm. don't understand. Yeah. So I'm just wondering how important you is, uh, how important it is to you in what you do and what other podcasts are doing to tell the story of comedians that are not doing late night or doing um, right. big movies. Well, I think it's like, I learned not too long ago that at any point in history, there's always been like hundreds of unknown comedians. And, uh, and, and being part of the, the community of comedians, I, like part of what I did at the beginning was really, it was, a, it was me asking to be let back in to the community. Like, I, I wanted to know that I had friends and we were all cool. We're good. So, <laughs> it, it's true, like, because I'd become so cynical and so fucking weird and angry that, that I had marginalized myself in my own mind, but usually the people that I talked to were like, I didn't even know you were mad. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Because we're all so selfish. But over time, I, I have made conscious decisions to have certain comics on because I thought that people should know about them because I love them so much. And, and even if they, if they remain unknown or whatever, I, I, do, I am sort of conscious of the fact that there are guys that do, and women that do amazing things that, that people just don't know about. And we don't know about it because getting back to what I was talking about in sort of a bleak way, there's only so many fucking hours in a day. I mean, I just, like, even when I have somebody on, like, Richard Thompson, who's a wizard of a guitar player, they're, like, I've said lately that, like, there's no, there's no real late to the party because the party is ongoing and that, you know, you can come at anything at any time because it's all available, but who the fuck has, has time? Mm-hmm. So, so there is part of me that feels like there are definitely people that deserve to be recognized for what they do, and there are some really fucking funny people that, that nobody really knows who they are, and I love talking to them. So I, I'm conscious of it, and sometimes I do it on purpose. How's that? All right. Let's, let's begin the show. Wait, you, you okay? Did, uh, did you want any more attention? What's up? No, come on. No, tell me. Tell me. Now I'm the asshole? No, you, you no try, I, I'm the asshole for making you look like an asshole. No, you didn't. You're though okay, I am an asshole. Okay. You're actually more like me than the other guy. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm actually a little charmed by that. Um, this is actually my first WTF, mm-hmm. and um, I was going to ask, what's your Let's favorite episode? Him. Come oh. on. <laughs> Who's in charge? Get the diapers. All right, good. <laughs> um, I'm actually new to LA, uh-huh. and I was wondering how- How old how, are you? 
I'm only a 21 baby boy. And you just moved here? I just moved on here. On your own? On my own. Are you in school? No, sir. Uh, what's your plan? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was just, uh, I, I wanted to know. I'm getting how, sad. <laughs> I just know what, where the line was um, between networking and being uh, talented. You're, you're, you're asking the wrong guy. All right, thank you. Here, no, listen, no, listen. There are people that, that are fundamentally untalented that can have great success because their ambition is so focused and they work hard. And there are people that are talented that have no success because their talent drains them of their ability to be successful. So, you know, you've got to find somewhere in between. If you are talented, you should try to figure out what those are and what the parameters are and, and, and how you can use them to, to help you as opposed to hurt you. If you're not talented, you're going to have to work really hard and you'll probably become more successful than a lot of your talented friends. All right. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to bring up my first guest, who is one of the warriors of freeform rock radio on KMET right here in L.A., a legend... Mr. Jim Ladd, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Jim. Why don't you sit right in that one? Hello. This is, I don't know how many, how many people know who Jim is? You want to hold it or you want to talk into it? I'll just talk into it. Then. Listen to that voice! <laughs> That's a real fucking deal. <laughs> So, when did you get into radio? Oh, man. I have to say that in front of this crowd? Yes, sir. Everybody's 12 years old here. 1969. 1969. See, now I feel like I'm going to be this weird interpreter. That's when things happened. <laughs> it was before my time, but I was very appreciative of it. <laughs> 69. Yeah. So what was, like, what was the radio landscape? The reason, like, let me, should, I should preface this. The reason I had Jim here and I've got Fraser Smith in the wings is that uh, Fraser Smith, another uh, legendary rock DJ and stand-up comic, is that we owe a certain amount of, of props to these guys who fucking cut the way for fucking radio and broadcasting. When you had to figure out how to be unique and creative and still have a fucked up shitty boss. <laughs> <laughs> so in 69, what was the yeah. angle? What was radio doing? There was a, a revolution happening. Uh, two names you should know is Tom and Rachel Donahue who invented uh, FM radio because before Tom and Rachel, the landscape was top 40 radio. You know the guys that talk like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi. I'm always really, really fucking happy. <laughs> and uh, Tom and Rachel came along and one day, uh, I'll tell this story really quickly. Oh, take your time. Uh, there. Oh, that's right. I'm on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. This oh. Yeah. We'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, anyway, one, uh, the story goes one day in, up in uh, San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, Tom was sitting around with uh, some friends. Tom at that time was a 350-pound guy, big AM radio guy, one of those guys that talk like was that. Was he a, manager, a, studio, a station manager or a DJ? A DJ. Okay. And he'd gotten sick of the bubblegum uh, Top 40 stuff. Anyway, so they're sitting around. They're blazing on LSD, yeah. playing cards. They're melting. They can't figure out what the fuck they're looking at, right. all the cards. And 
he had been given an acetate of a brand new band that no one had ever heard of yeah. called The Doors. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good timing on that. Good timing on yeah. that. So the end is playing on a vinyl record yeah. in the back, and Tom says, why don't we hear this on the radio? Yeah. Next day he gets up, he puts on his power tie, and he says, he calls, he gets the phone book out. This is when you had phone books. Yeah. And he finds an FM station whose phone had been disconnected. He said, I've got it. I've got him now. Yeah. We're going to go paint the sky blue for this guy. Yeah. So he went down to this radio station in uh, San Francisco, did his magic talk. Yeah. Tom and Ray go home. They take a, their own albums in boxes down to this FM station. And by the way, FM at that time was basically foreign language, classical music, and static. That was it. I would be listening to the static yeah. station. Nobody gave a shit about FM radio. Nobody knew about it. They, if you bought an AM station, they'd throw the FM one from. Yeah. Anyway, so he went on the air there and started a literal broadcast revolution called Freeform Radio, and I came along about two years later. Yes. A lot of these... I, I, like, I remember Freeform Radio, because when I grew up in New Mexico, there was... Uh, KRST in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. And really. And, and like all I remember was that, 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 that we put it on in the restaurant I worked at. And a guy would come on and be like, hey, how's everybody doing? Uh, right now we're going to play side two of Jesse Colin Young's second album. And then that would be it. And then he'd come back on and he'd be like, ah, I just got back in. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. But that was but that was beautiful in a way, wasn't oh, yeah. it? Oh yeah. So what did you and when you started in on that, what was what was your angle? Because I know that that from very early on you you would utilize the music to sort of make points, you would have themes, yes. you would you know, you would sort of pepper your monologue with music and sort of carry it through so it was an, an entire listening experience. That's a very good way to describe it. Uh, my particular thing that I found and I do it today on uh, Sirius XM, I'm allowed to, thank God, still do it. Um, it. My approach to Freeform Radio was, first off, it was very, uh, we were very involved in what was going on in the streets. Vietnam was still going on, the civil rights movement, uh, all of that 60s social ethic. Yeah. We felt n obligated. It wasn't like something, well, we should do this to get listeners. We were listeners who were just lucky enough to get to play with the PA. Yeah. That's the way we looked at it. Right. You know? We're at the party and we get to play with the thing. So it was incumbent upon us to comment on what was going on in the streets and what the protesters were doing. Well, then, you have to remember, you have Bob Dylan singing songs about these issues. Yeah. You have the Beatles and the Stones and the Doors and uh, all these great artists writing this extraordinary music. So what I tried to do was take what was happening in the streets, the lyrics of the songs, combine them with my take on that particular issue, and put them together into a show. So if I set up a, a set about the environment or, you know, politics or getting laid or whatever you want, you know. How many times did you do that last one? Th that was mostly the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. You know, we had things like uh, the all-girl harmonica band looking for ladies with the best licks in town. Uh, Long-legged pony reviews, things like that. But Are these real bands? Is that a, or no, that no, no, that was a, no. I made that up. <laughs> no, no, 
No, no, no. The lo- the, uh, See how all sensitive girl heart. and stupid I've gotten? It's like, wow, yeah. they were really performing that kind of stuff yeah. then. No, they were performing all right. Uh-huh. It, was, it was a whole different kind of performance. But um, anyway, where the hell was I? So anyway, we yeah. try to take these topics. Yeah. And, w- and if you listen very carefully to the lyrics of these songs, they will continue the story that I set up. So, right. so you would have to really listen to what the song was saying and the next song and the next song. And it would have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so from that, you get what became, you know, rock radio, FM rock radio. Like once the, the social issues, though, they're back and, and they never quite go away. But once the 60s sort of kind of like fizzled out and became exploitable music-wise, yeah. that, you know, once there, there were people that really meant something. And then the record companies were like, well, it's just a sound. We can get everyone fucking doing this. And then it just became a party from, what, 1972 to like three years ago? <laughs> what, was, pretty much. When did that pretty, pretty much? much? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll tell you. I'll tell you when it ended, because this is kind of serious. Uh, I don't know how many of you here remember a radio station called KMET, but I miss it every day. And it was the epitome of FM freeform outlaw rock radio, and it was a must listen in town. And we had complete and total freedom. As you have freedom on your podcast, yeah. which is the brilliance of being able to do podcasts because nobody's telling you what to do. No one told us what to do then. And so it was heaven. It was heaven every day, you know. But what was your relationship with the people that were in charge? I mean, I have to assume that, like, you know, we just got a, a, a letter in the post yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, in the post. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Thank God there was no email. Two weeks oh, ago, this, this person mailed this letter. Right. She had a problem with something you said, and you were like, I don't even fucking remember what I exactly. said. Exactly. <laughs> and, and those letters were, all, you could always tell them, see them coming because they were about that thick. Yeah. They had like 40 pages of handwritten information. And they never, and, and oh, yeah, after they sealed the envelope, they had to write on the outside of the envelope. <laughs> so healthy people. Healthy people. Yeah. Real healthy people. Uh, what were most of the complaints then? Well, you know, uh, people would be uh, probably put off by my political stance. It might be a bit too liberal for them uh-huh. uh, as, as we got uh, going. You know, at the first, everybody, it's a big tribe, and everybody says, yeah, because it was our community bulletin board. So, you know, go to the anti-war rally, go to this protest, go to that. And that was all fantastic. Then Ronald Reagan came along. Uh-huh. And I remember the night that I got... I said something about Reagan. Guy calls me up. He goes, look, man, I'm a rocker for Reagan. Shut the fuck up. And I went, man, the world has just changed. My world has just changed. And what, uh, what happened was Ronald Reagan did a thing called deregulation because, you know, Republicans love to deregulate things. Sure, no rules. Let no people rules. fend for themselves. Exactly. You know, we don't need clean water. We don't need clean air. We, you know, the... When it gets real bad, a private company will take it over, and that's how we create businesses. Global warming is a, you know, that's not happening. Yeah, apocalypse management. It's a future business. Exactly. So they deregulated the broadcast industry, and without getting too technical, what used to happen is you could only own seven radio and TV stations up until Ronald Reagan. That meant that there was thousands of radio stations across the country Mm -hmm. owned by people who were actual broadcasters who loved the media. You had to know what you were doing. Well, once that went out the window, it was like everybody had a podcast. No, it was, um, (laughs) the, it was quite the opposite actually. And that's why all joking aside, what you're doing out here is important because 
what happened to our media is that instead of more and more people owning it, fewer and fewer people start owning it. Sure, then you get the clear channel radio mills. That's right. And that's, oh, that's that. right. You don't, yeah. <laughs> so now there's just a handful of very, very powerful people who've watered down rock and roll. I always thought, who can make rock and roll boring? Well, they figured out a way. <laughs> Somebody sat down and go, I'm going to make a format and, you know, made it boring for fuck's sake. How do you make rock and roll? Well, it's just like I, I know from being a comic, you know, you go on the road and then you go do a radio show and you do all your radio in one building because it was all yeah. Clear Channel. So you go like, all right, you're going in with the Joey and the dummy and, and then yeah. we're going to go to, to Billy and the stupid lady. Yeah. And then yeah, so, so you just kind of walk down this hallway to a bunch of guys going, hey, here he is. Mark yeah. Maron's in the house. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was it was kind of frightening because you realize that there was no independence at all. Correct. And that and that the, the the game was fixed, completely, totally fixed. Uh, you're going to bring a guest on here in a minute by the name of Fraser Smith, one of the most creative and talented people I've worked with, and they they still are trying to figure out how to, you know, grind him down. And oh well, shit, that's a hell of an intro. Why don't you come out, Fraser? Fraser Smith, ladies and gentlemen. Still at it. Still on the dial. You want me to move over? No, you guys, he can be, he, he's all right, because we're going we're gonna to start talking about partying pretty soon. Anybody got any blow? <laughs> Come on, let's get this shit going. What is things asked in the 80s? Yeah. Nice shirt, bro. Fraser, so... Right, you can work right, the room. Come on, that's Go my ahead. kid. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Do it. Work the room. Do it. What the fuckers, what's up? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Jim Ladd, come on, a legend. Come on. So now, but before, before Reagan came, before deregulation, there was a period there from like 71, 72, all the way through the 80s, where it was just a fucking free-for-all, I have to imagine. I mean, this is L.A. rock radio. This is where the music business is. When did you know that things were out of control, Jim? Uh, probably when I was uh, doing lines on the uh, bench in the studio and the general manager walked in and said, where's the straw? Uh, you know, that, that probably was the moment. Uh, you know, when the... Yeah, that's where I used to get my blow. Where? where? The From the man? GM. <laughs> they always have the best drugs. Oh, yeah. So he didn't give a fuck either? No. We, uh, honest to God, in, in, uh, when KMET moved to the new building at Metro Media Square, and Rachel Donahue gets with the uh, architect, and there's they show. Okay, here's the studio, here's the music library, here's the door in between. She goes, "No, you're going to have to build this little like uh, telephone size uh, vestibule, this little booth. You walk in one door, you, you can close the door. Then you walk in the music. She goes, well, what? We don't need that. She goes, No, it's got to be a place for the jocks to smoke dope. Yeah. Yeah. And they went, okay, well, we'll build it. And they did. And we called it the Paraquat Lounge. The Paraquat Lounge. <laughs> that Paraquat was a thing they used to spray on marijuana that caused it to be, uh, be cancerous and horrible. They did it in an effort to kill the marijuana plants back when people you know, grew it illegally in fields in Mexico. Yep. Yeah, you learned something. <laughs> was that right? Uh, it wasn't right? Vietnam. Oh, okay. But didn't they use it on pot plants in the States? Let me... Uh, so now we're up. back to Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, it always comes back to Vietnam. I, I, I want to uh, just say, if I can, just sure. for a second here. 
whatever uh, you want. Because this, this goes to the power of, of why this was important and why it's important we lost it. You're right, Paraquat was a defoliant used in Vietnam. But then what they did was, in the Carter administration, they brought it and they started spraying it on Mexican marijuana fields to kill the marijuana. Well, what would happen is the uh, drug dealers, being the conscientious folks that we all know them to be, sure. would harvest the plants and then ship them over here, sopping with this horrible chemical. Mm -hmm. So here's an example of what you can do with real radio, real yeah. FM radio. We got a hold of this story. Our news guy, Pat Kelly, read the story. I'm listening to it at home because you actually listen to your own radio station in that, those days. Back in those days, yeah. Back in those days, you weren't <laughs> embarrassed because they were playing the same fucking song over and over. Hey, Aqualung, it must be 1215. Yeah. <laughs> Aqualung is 1215. Yeah, yeah Aqualung yeah. must be 1215. How about some more bad company? <laughs> yeah. And, and let's have the same exact yeah. bad yeah, company exactly. song. Okay. Sure. Can't get enough of your Thank love. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Because obviously the audience is not hip enough to want to listen to more than three records. You know, sure. you wouldn't put on a vinyl record and just explore it, would you, Mark? Never, man. Oh, no. I'm just going to play Bob Seger's Night Moves over and over no, exactly. again. There you go. Exactly. Great album. So I hear this thing. Yeah. I go into the station. They've already written up a public service announcement. I go on the air and I say... Look, this is important. You heard Paraquat, or Pat uh, talk about this. I'm on the air now, and I said, why don't you write your congressman? And we had the congressman write down. Yeah. And then I started a song like Homegrown or something from Neil Young, right? Mm -hmm. So the, I, I you know, turn the mic off. The phone rings. I pick it up, and it's a friend of mine. And he says, well, why don't you have him call the White House? And I went, Fuck. yeah, like I got Jimmy Carter's number. He said, no, no, no. There's, there's a public number you can call <laughs> yeah. 24 hours a day. And by the way, it's the same number today. And I said, what? And he said, yes. Yeah. So I, I, okay, so I wrote the number down. I call the White House, and by God, there was somebody there. Sure. Now, now it's like 11 o'clock L.A. time, yeah. right? So it's like 3 One, in the morning, 2, yeah. 3 in the morning. So I said, okay, I just want to make sure you're there. So I went back on here, and I said... Guess what? <laughs> I got the phone number for the White House. Yeah. And I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. And we're going to call and we're going to be polite. We're not going to be assholes, but we're going to tell them what we think about this. Well, I gave the number out, turned, put on another song. I dialed the phone to the White House. It was busy. Hung up, dialed it again, and I got that thing, which you probably don't remember, but there used to be a message. I'm sorry, all circuits into Washington, D.C. are busy. <laughs> So we shut down the phones. When I got off the air that night, I'm leaving the studio. And the guy that's on after me goes, hold it, hold it. The Secret Service is on the phone. <laughs> so I had to talk to them. And the next day, of course, the general manager calls me and threatens to fire me <laughs> and everybody else in the studio if we ever mention this again. As I'm walking down the hallway, the news director is just starting his show, and he's the first story out of his mouth. Well, the Paraquat in Washington, D.C., and here's the phone number. We just <laughs> completely blew this asshole oh, off, right? Yeah. So the end of the story is, in about uh, uh, a month, we had gathered 250,000 signatures, sent them back with the news director to Washington, D.C., and within two months, Congress stopped the funding of Paraquat. That was all due to our audience. Yeah.
And then our, uh, our newsman became known as Paraquat Kelly. Is that true? Kelly. The great Paraquat <laughs> Kelly. Now, let's talk about, like, how, like, the, the sort of, um, like, you guys were backstage talking about all the places you were fired from and, and how, uh, you, you know, when, when you started doing radio, what was your format? Was it freeform as well? Uh, yeah, because that was the era for FM, as yeah. Jim pointed out, and it had just pretty much started around yeah. 68, 71, I got into it, um, uh, and it was uh, a new, uh, really a new medium. Yeah. Nobody was, it was like, uh, Jim's right, there was nothing on there. And what was your angle? Uh, I just like to fuck around. Yeah. And I figured, how can I get paid for that? <laughs> Which is pretty much what I did. And you still do it now? Yeah, pretty much. On, yeah. on, you're on I'm on Sunday night on KLOS 95.5. Uh, if you get a chance, please check it out. 10 till 2. Thank you. Apparently, they haven't heard the show. Okay. Uh, and what was it like? What was the training for radio? Like, what did you guys do to, to get into radio? What, what was the, the sort of course of the career? What was the plan? Well, I, you know, I started uh, at a little AM station mm -hmm. that was, I was going to school in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and they had a little AM station called WYYY, which is what they asked after they fired me. Yeah. Why that sounded we, scripted. Why did we put this guy on there? <laughs> yeah. But it was a really good experience because you had to learn how to do everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it was one of these little uh, deals where you had to do the sports and the news and sweep up afterwards and turn on the equipment. Traffic. And traffic. And, you, you know, you had to do it all. So I think, you know, as you move up in that world, it's, it always kind of stays the same. Yeah. And, you know, the buildings get bigger and everything, but the uh, mechanics are basically the same. I saw a guy that used to work with carts. You guys had the carts, yeah, right? Yeah, the carts, yeah. Like, I saw a guy once, it was like a throwback. I did a show with him, and he was working carts, and he was doing all the voices, and he had the 360 machine that had all the buttons with the sound effects, and it was like a one-man fucking band. It was horrible, but it seemed like an amazing <laughs> yeah. skill. It was, but yeah. it was very, very difficult. Yeah. Now, w w part of the, what was the relationship, though, that I'm curious about? What was the relationship with a station like you, uh, like you guys doing Freeform, with the record companies? I, mean, I know you got tired of bad company, but you definitely had to have some sort of negotiation with them, right? Well, I think it got less and less as time went, wore on. Yeah. There was a time where you had a little bit of leeway to maybe uh, break a record, break yeah. a band early on when we got in there. Uh, did you I, ever break a band? Well, I did a couple, yeah. yeah. I, I, I started at K-Rock uh, when I got to L.A., and there's the uh, program director and his family. Uh, uh, K-Rock was awesome because it was uh, independently owned, one of the last big independently owned stations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember we were in a little two-story building in Pasadena. This guy used to climb up the uh, fire escape while I was on the air, <laughs> yeah. climb in through the window, yeah. kick in the door. Yeah. And you go, hey, dude, you got to play my test pressing, man. Come on, bro. Really? It was David Lee Roth. So <laughs> I'm like, get the fuck out of here, dude. This is professional broadcasting. You, he goes, you'll be sorry, man. So he did this for like three months. You know. Finally, just to get him off my back, I go, hey, all right, buddy, I'll play that for you. Because it was K-Rock. I could still, in those days, play one or two cuts if I wanted. Right. So I played uh, Ain't Talking About Love. Right. It went, th went through the roof. You, know. you were the guy. Well, allegedly. But, <laughs> uh, did you, did, were you and Dave friends after that? Did yeah. You? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've been friends for a long time. And, and that happened once in a blue moon. You could do that. Um, I remember uh, I used to get... Uh, cassettes back in the day. And you know, I get them now. People send me cassettes. I'm like, yeah, me do too. You, I don't have a machine that does this. Yeah. Yeah. Do I need to get a machine that does that now? Is that the new thing? Lo-fi cassettes? I don't need to? All right. That, that, that lady who sends me is going to be disappointed. Well, 
I was the rocker for Reagan. But anyway, uh, ah. call back the... Uh, I used to, yeah. Or I'd get these cassettes, and uh, I'd be like at the Rainbow or something, and people go, hey, dude, play this. Can you play this, man? And, uh, okay. So you take it, because you get so many of them. Yeah. You're not trying to be rude. You'd yeah. like to help whoever you can help. Right. Uh, but, you know, you get a lot of them when you're, when you're on the air all the time, so you kind of throw them in a drawer, and every once in a while you'd play a couple of them. Yeah. And I played one, and it sounded really good. It was Motley Crue. Really? And, uh, yeah. It was uh, Live Wire. Uh-huh. So I go on and ask my boss, can we play Live Wire? No. Uh, who are those guys? And so then I just played it anyway. And I had enough grace at that point to wither something like that. I didn't, you know, I wouldn't get canned over one of them. Right, right. And uh, that was another band I helped out a little bit. How about you, Jim? Did you break any guys? Yeah, it was very funny. At KMET, uh, uh, we would get back in those days, and I'm not making this up, 30 albums a week yeah. in our uh, mailboxes. Every, every jock got the, the releases. The promo copies, the white uh, Yeah, promo, promo copies. copies, yeah. Got and any of those we, left? Can I have a... No, okay. <laughs> Long ago, sold those for... Never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but we, we took... Uh, our, we certainly didn't take ourselves seriously because we pinched ourselves every day that we were working there. Yeah. We knew then, while we were there, 20 years old, you know, not knowing anything, we knew that how lucky we were. But we took it seriously because we felt... You know, these guys uh, formed a band. You right. know, they really, you know. So we would listen intently, and and we had complete freedom to play anybody we wanted. Uh, one of the new bands that uh, we had played, nobody had ever heard of, was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh. I remember playing that first. I remember uh, George Thorog and the Destroyers. Sure. Um, uh, and so, yeah, they would come up, and, and all of the jocks, not just me, but all, everybody had a good ear. So, you know, we would, if, if we felt it, it was quality stuff, we would play it. If we felt it was shit, we just wouldn't. Yeah, it. the entire staff knew music at KMET. All the jocks, yeah. you know, could have been a program director. They knew what was going on musically. It's rumored that Tom Petty wrote the last DJ about you. Can we validate that rumor? Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. very nice. It was, yeah. was Come pretty on, Jim humbling. Ladd. It's pretty humbling. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is uh, Johnny Fever based on you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it's all not. No. Talk about a guy who could work the carts. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. That, now, you've interviewed just about every fucking rock and roll person in the world, and I, saw, I watched some video of you uh, presenting Slash with his, uh, his star on the walk of Hollywood fame. You have a uh, star on the walk, too, don't I you? I do. I do. I keep waiting for somebody to come up and go, just kidding. <laughs> but yes, I do. I well, that do. must have been a big day, huh? Oh, man. I was... Uh, so overwhelmed. My father, God bless him, was still alive, so he got to see that. Oh, and my that's great. You know, my yeah. brother and sister and stuff. And uh, it was, you know, rarely in life do you have a perfect day. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always something that goes wrong. Sure. That was, from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep, was a perfect day. Mm. And, and I'll never forget it. And Jackson Brown came and spoke, and uh, Woody Harrelson came and spoke, and uh, you know a lot of these very kind people came and spoke. A lot of weed, huh? A lot oh, of yeah. weed. Perfect lot of weed. day. 
That's fucking beautiful, yeah, so man. It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, where in Hollywood Boulevard is it? it? You know where the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel is? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh good place. Right there. Yeah, it's got good real estate. Yeah. 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 Thank God that hotel turned around. Huh? Amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Mines yeah. and Watts. <laughs> it really runs out that far. Yeah, yeah I was. Yours is uh, coming, crazy. It took a turn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because my dad. Yeah. You know, he's World War II vet. They lived up north. Very supportive. Couldn't have better parents, but. Yeah, they didn't really relate to the rock and roll lifestyle. You know, lifelong Republican, and here I come, you know, this liberal asshole that, you know, believes in everything from smoking pot to... Anyway, so... But when I got that star, that, you know, got to my dad. You know what? Because John Wayne has one. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And his boy got Uh, something that John Wayne did. So suddenly I was cool. (laughs) That's a fucking beautiful moment. Yeah, yeah. When your dad finally realizes that you're all right. And he deserves that star because uh, Jim Ladd really uh, was a pioneer with music and would not just sit there and play the same old stuff over and over again. He put his career at risk many times and also had a political viewpoint that he wasn't afraid to share, uh, which is awesome. In this day and age, you know, it takes a lot of guts. And uh, putting your job on the line, you know, which he did many every night, basically. Did you? What were some of the fights you had to fight within the within the hierarchy? Well, first off, let me just say, having to compete against him put my job on the line as well, <laughs> you know, because that wasn't easy. Because uh, uh, you know, there was a time. Let me just return a compliment. Do We're it. not kissing anybody's ass here, but there was a time when this guy was the phenomenon in L.A in the morning and he was against us and we were really aware of Fraser Smith and also I was thinking about this knowing I was going to see you how fucked excuse my language go ahead how fucked up is it that a creative guy like this comes up with the phrase party animal which everybody knows became uh, a big advertising thing with Spud McKenzie and gee how much money did they come and dump on your doorstep for that Uh. Not a lot. Uh, Spud's got most of that. <laughs> you came up with party animal? He yeah. Yeah. invented that yeah. term, party animal. It's part, well, of, the, uh, a Mexic- uh, it's part of the American lexicon. Well, unfortunately, at that time, I was the party animal. Mm-hmm. But the anyway. hard part is trying to do morning radio after you've been out partying all night. It's never easy. Did you have to do that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so I, the first couple night? years, you know, yeah. are like that. I remember... Uh, you know, I was young, so I, I was partying, you know, every night Doing at the, the club. club. Well, yeah. And uh, I would go in late to work. I'd yeah. get there about 7 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, for no, a 6 o'clock? I, for a 6 o'clock show. <laughs> I would have my engineer play uh, taped shit for an hour. <laughs> it's an old radio trick, guys, if you want to think about that. Uh, and then I would park in my boss's spot because I was, you know, it was the closest place to the station. <laughs> So then I would go in, and I would do the show, and then hopefully I would remember later to move my car during the show. Right. So one day I forgot, I got involved in the show, and I remember I'm on the air, and he had my car towed mm-hmm. while I was on the air. So I, I, inter- I took my mic outside, and I interviewed the tow truck guy. I go, who's, who's towing my car? And they yeah. go, well, this this guy, and I go, it's my boss, that fucker. Yeah. So uh, he, I had my, my slogan was too hip. I had the slogan too hip, and they had he had gotten these two hip personalized license plates. So I said, if you see a silver Cadillac with two hip license plates, give him the finger. Yeah. So everyone in town at every stoplight was flipping them off. <laughs> I love it. Everywhere he went, people were flipping them off. They'd honk and they'd go, "Fuck you," you know. And so 
this is my boss, and uh, so I was fired three weeks later. But I, <laughs> but you know, I do have a story on that just quickly. Yeah. I, I had uh, so they really started putting pressure on me after that. They were really kind of hassling me yeah. at, at every turn. So um, I had sold a script, I thought, to MGM at the time. It was MGM. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had written a script with Jack Handy, who was the writer of The Jerk with uh, Steve Martin. And uh, so we wrote this thing, and it actually got greenlit for a day. I thought it was a sold deal. Yeah. So I went on the air, and I go, you know, I won't be needing this job anymore. <laughs> These guys are losers. Look at these idiots. Yeah, and you didn't hear about this. And every single thing that I was pissed about, I went off for like three hours. I didn't play one record. I just, these morons, you know, and so I'm saying all this stuff. All of a sudden, I hear this pounding on the glass, on the studio glass. I look over. It's my news guy, and he's holding up the L.A. Times calendar section. It says, studio head fired. <laughs> It was the guy that greenlit my project. So there was no movie deal. <laughs> Did you get back on the mic uh, and say, I've made whoops. a horrible mistake these last three hours. Yeah, sorry about that. We're going to commercial. And I was out looking for work the next week. So, Jim, like, in terms of interviewing people, because I do it for a living now, right. and I know you, like, you, and musicians are not easy, really, for no. me. Because like, yeah. they don't have to talk. Right. And some of them, you know, are very, you know, they have a certain uh, uh, image that they have to mm -hmm. maintain, and it's hard to get through. Right, correct. So in, in the history of the hundreds of interviews you did, who was the fucker that you still, you're sort of like, that fuck? Oh, man, you want to ask it that way rather than no, who's let the me nicest try to, person? No, let me try it another way. Who is the most difficult? <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. Uh, mm -hmm. And by the way... Um, this guy, in his garage, yeah. gets the president of the United yeah, States. Yeah, how about that? Come on. That's awesome. Pretty damn impressive. That's awesome. Yeah. Pretty damn impressive. That's awesome. Thank um, you, taxpayers, for paying yeah. for that trip. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, when you, you're right with, with uh, musicians, because yeah. uh, their job is to play music. Right. It's not to talk. Yeah. Some are quite good verbally and they can express themselves that way and others just have no clue whatsoever. Then you can get them on a bad day. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got a bad day. Sure. I got Robert Palmer on a bad day. Oh, I remember man. that very oh. clearly. And Elvin Bishop on a bad day. But that's about it. I think I, Elvin's had a couple of bad years, really. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to go into detail. But sure. But over the, I didn't show, it was the first nationally syndicated uh, show about interviewing rock people called Interview, and it ran on 160 stations for 11 years. And during that time, once a week, that's probably the only two people I would say I had a problem with. Everybody else was pretty good. Robert Palmer and Elvin Bishop? Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I think you're being diplomatic, Jim. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you, there's... People who you better come with your guns loaded. If you're going to interview Roger Waters, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. But he's one of the nicest people and one of the smartest people you've ever met. And he used meet. you on a record, didn't he? He did. Which what, what was uh, it? Radio Chaos. Radio Chaos, yeah. And, and Jim was live on stage at the forum. Yeah. Wow. It was yeah. kind of fun. That was awesome. That was fun. He called one day and he says, I'm going to do this record. It's called Radio Chaos. 
Uh, I'm looking for a DJ who lives in L.A. His name is Jim, and he fights for freeform radio. Do you know anybody like that? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I got to do that. But he's very good. Stevie Nicks was always a pleasure to do, uh, yeah. to interview. And... Uh, <laughs> yeah, both, actually. Classic. Um, so anyway, but most... I'll tell you, what I found, you're probably the same way, the bigger the star usually the nicer it was the guys that had one hit and thought they were elvis yeah that had the attitude right and when they would come up to the house in a limo with an entourage you know and you know their pr blah 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 when i interviewed george harrison mm -hmm. he drove himself in this little nondescript bmw you never recognize it no problem yeah came up spent the first 10 minutes making me feel comfortable uh. yeah that's what Obama did. Like, I was so fucking nervous. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, he didn't come with it in his own thing, but I was like, holy shit, this is going to be tricky. You know, and, and, and he sort of came in. He's like, how we doing? Yeah, we're going to have a good time, right? Aww. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Are we? Yeah. Yeah. It's up to you, man. Yeah. That was a great interview, man. And Thanks, I, buddy. I, you yeah, know, that was great. great. It really was good. It was crazy. Good yeah. Did you ever interview John Lennon? I did. Wow. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. And, uh, at what point, what period was that? Very early on, I was 23 years old, never met a Beatle, never been to New York, <laughs> never ridden in a limousine, nothing. Yeah. And uh, uh, John Lennon put out a uh, Walls and Bridges, that album. Yes, you can applaud That's that. That's that Great one album. guy. Yeah, right? Yeah. Ringo. And um, <laughs> Ringo. <laughs> Ringo's here. Uh, I called, uh, anyway, I hear that the, he's got this album out, yeah. and then I hear he's, they're giving an interview on an AM station. This is 1973. Yeah. And being, having absolutely no fucking idea about how the business is done, more balls and cents, I call up Capitol Records and I go, what are you thinking? AM radio? We're the revolution. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I just, you know, went off on this yeah. guy. I don't even know who he was. This poor guy picked up the phone. <laughs> So after like 15 minutes of me just blowtorch into the phone, I mean, no clue. I could have been talking to the president of the Capitol yeah, yeah. for all I knew. Guy goes, okay, 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 okay. I'll call you back. And I thought, sure. Well, by God, I'm on FM radio. You better call. <laughs> you know, we, we were the social revolution. We were, you know, hippies. Come on, man. About 10 minutes later, he calls back. He goes, hey, you got an interview with John Lennon. <laughs> And I went, now what am I going to do? You know? <laughs> what? <laughs> so anyway, long story short, I end up uh, going to New York. The station put me up. Yeah. They were taking bets on the fact that since I was a native Southern Californian, I would not survive from the airport terminal to the cab without being mugged. Oh, really? Because I was so lame about you know, this stuff. And this was the early 70s, right? Oh, yeah. So it was different New York. Yeah, 73. yeah. 73. So anyway, I go there, uh, next day comes, uh, I get in my first limo ride, they take me to the record plant in New York. <clears throat> all right, wait over there. Now I start running all the old Beatles press conferences in my head thinking, oh man, this guy is gonna tear me to pieces. Yeah. He's just gonna take one look at me and tear me. He suddenly John Lennon walks in and I'm introduced and they said, come with me. So we go down the hall He's saying hello to every secretary, every engineer, hi, by name, how's the kids doing? Couldn't be nicer. Get locked in a room, and the record company guy goes, you got an hour. Next thing I know, John Lennon's sitting behind the desk, I'm on the other side, here we go. Yeah. 
So I unpack my bag with my little stupid tape recorder. And I'm in the record plant, which is one of the unbelievable facilities in the world. And I bring this little tape recorder. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> and I start to set it up. And I forgot... The microphone. The no. mic stand. Oh. The stand. I got the thing. But this was, looked like what I should have brought, right. and I didn't have it. And just one mic. One mic. Okay. Because the station, you know, it's only John Lennon. What yeah. the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> John Lennon. So he sees me now become even more nervous. Right. He says, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I've tried to, you know, I forgot the mic stand, and I don't want this. <laughs> he goes, um, ah, no problem. He goes, uh, hand me the phone book. And there's a big, thick New York phone book. He goes, okay, put it over here. He says, now hand me the dictionary on the desk. So he puts a dictionary on the phone book. He spies a, a half-drunk cup of coffee, pours out the drinks, turns it upside down. He goes, give me the mic. I gave him the mic. He puts it on top, takes some tape, tapes it up. He goes, okay, let's go. <laughs> and I, I just got saved by John Lennon. <laughs> Well, those Beatles uh, are nothing if not inventive. <laughs> and that was yeah. like, that must have been, you made it through. You did it oh, an hour. He could have been, maybe he's John Lennon. He could have looked at me. I had a kid, you know. Yeah. Be, no, it's exactly the opposite. And fortunately, I had prepared because, as you know, um, except for Fraser and I, which apparently had, what, 30 seconds of prep work, uh, you know, it's all about the homework mm -hmm. when you do an interview. It's all about the homework. Yeah. And it's like 90%. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so he saw that I was prepared, and he couldn't have been nicer, couldn't have been more funny and engaging. And, uh, and so it's a great man. Thank God it came out to be a great memory. And then it dawned on me years later, I'm in the fucking record plant. Why did I ask them for a mic stand? Yeah. They only have a, like a thousand of them in their very <laughs> kind of description. <laughs> anyway, that was a great interview. That's great. Yeah. How about you, Frazier? What do you got? Uh, you mean interview-wise? Yeah. Uh, my favorite, I think, interview that I ever had, I had Rodney Dangerfield and Rowdy Roddy Piper yeah. on the same show. Yeah. And uh, Rodney had no idea who Rodney Piper was. He was like, who is that guy? Hey, what's he doing? Uh, was, so, had, had you been up all night? And with Bob Ro Saget. Bob Saget was on the oh, show. Oh, you knew too. Bob Saget. Yeah, he was the interpreter. Because <laughs> those guys... But that was a favorite of mine. And then another favorite was Alice Cooper. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I always think Alice is a hilarious yep. guy, Amen. you know, a, a funny guy. In fact, Johnny Carson used to say he was the best interview of all the rockers because he had a wit and he's just a charismatic guy. And let me say before this, I am getting to do what we're talking about right now on Sirius XM. Mm -hmm. This is extraordinary for me, yeah. Because... It's not about me, it's about keeping Freeform alive. And these people have not only given me four hours a night to do it, they put a studio in my house to do it in, and most importantly, they leave me alone. They awesome. do not yeah, tell me what to go. play. Yeah. I have never had them tell me, don't play that, or why don't you play this? So anyway, Sirius XM, Deep Tracks, I got to thank him. And, whether you are listening or not, you should thank them because Freeform Radio, it's, you know, it's not around anymore. That's anyway. right. What, what record do you find over the years you've returned to the most? Oh, it's The Doors. <laughs> I was yeah, going to say, yeah. I, I, I know what it is. The Doors. The first record I heard you playing when I walked into KMET and met you for the first time, I opened the door to the studio and a giant cloud came out. <laughs> and I saw some sunglasses in there somewhere. 
and he was playing The End yeah. by The Doors. Yeah. One of the great songs of all well, that time. Was the one that your theme song, it, yeah. right? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Did you ever meet Jim? No, I, I got to know and still do know uh, John and Robbie really well. And yeah. unfortunately, I got to know Ray really well. Uh, I saw Jim once. Uh, I only saw The Doors perform once. At the Troubadour? Uh, no, it was at the Long Beach Arena. Oh, yeah. And they, they were the band. I, I always say you have to put the Beatles on their own shelf right. separate from everybody else. And everybody has their gateway band. The Doors did it for me. That was the one that went, oh, wait a minute. Something really interesting is going on here. Far beyond tapping my foot. Far beyond a love song. This is talking to something deep within me. And resonating with something. I, I didn't even know what it was at that point. But I was on the journey to find it. Wow. How about you? What's your plan? Uh, for me, it's Striper. <laughs> That's, yeah, buddy. That's how I roll. <laughs> no, I'm a big... Uh, oh, my God. I, I'm a big David Bowie fan. I love David Bowie. Yeah. Did you ever interview Bowie? No, I, I have never interviewed Bowie. That's one of the people on my bucket list, along with Dylan. Yeah. Uh, I've never interviewed Dylan. That'd but, be tricky. Uh, yeah. That's, you know, I met him one time. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, Al Cooper, right? Yeah, the famous uh, uh, organ player. I and do. He played on all the uh, Dylan uh, albums. Early ones, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was, he had a little band. They were playing out in Trancas. Yeah. He goes, hey, why don't you come on and watch my band? And so I came out there on a Sunday night. I was yeah. out there at the bar, and I didn't recognize him at first. It was Bob Dylan. I was talking to him for about 15 minutes before I knew who it was. Really? Yeah. How high were you? Well,. I, <laughs> well he had a disguise. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, anyway, at the end, after the conversation, then I, and Al walks by and he goes, oh, I see you guys are getting along. That's Bob Dylan. Well, what? <laughs> you know? And uh, so we were talking for a little bit. I didn't understand hardly anything he said. Hi, everybody. I didn't know what he was talking yeah. about. But uh, we had a nice conversation, actually. And when I left, I, didn't, I was so nervous, I didn't know what to say. So I go, uh, keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he goes, I will, Mr. Dees. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, got you. All right, so let's hear the, let's hear the good war story. Because I remember when we shot my show with the three of us, that episode of Marin, that Radio Cowboy thing, there was some real shit going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Should I go serious or should I go funny? I can't go funny with you guys. Cause no, you go funny, man. Well, we did have uh, this thing called, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> the all-girl harmonica band. And... Um, True story. I, I, KMET was programmed by a woman, yeah. which is the first woman boss I ever had. And she was brilliant. She was great. And she, <laughs> I start doing this bit, and she's like looking at me like, oh, God, Jim, here you go again. Because it was slightly sexist back mm -hmm. in the day. But not and, now, right? Oh, no, no, <laughs> no. You know, I like my theme song was Backdoor Man from the Doors. I mean, you take it from there. So yeah. I come up with the all-girl harmonica band, and you know, I was known as the Lonesome L.A. Cowboy, which I copped from a new writer's The Purple Sage song. So anyway, I start doing this thing about this double entendre about uh, all-girl harmonica band, looking for the ladies with the best licks in town. The so best licks? Best licks. Like right. a, sure. the, you know, yeah, the, licks like and or guitar, right. guitar licks. Yeah. If I have to explain him, it's, is it me or is I, it him? No, no, I, no I, I, think I, it, I just wanted to make it clear for those who, you He's know, a podcaster, yeah. remember. Okay. Yeah. 
You can put visuals on yeah. this thing. Like I know. Did you? you just see my Jack Benny take? <laughs> <laughs> my Milton Berle. <laughs> All right, good. So anyway, um, she, the, uh, this program director comes up with the idea that, uh, well, you know, Honer harmonicas that makes the great harmonica, they have uh, like, all these different sizes. And the smallest one is called, oddly enough, the Little Lady. Mm-hmm. It's a real harmonica, four reeds. It's about that big. She gets a hold of the, <laughs> the company goes, well, we've got a guy out here, and he's doing the all-girl harmonica band, and we'd like to have a box of those little harmonicas as a promotional gift. Glad to do it. <laughs> so they, having no clue what I'm meaning with this, send us this big box of these little harmonicas, which you could put on a chain and wear like a necklace, right? Yeah. When they send it out, they also sent this wonderful press release talking about all the people who play Honor harmonicas, these celebrities, one of which was Jacqueline Smith of Charlie's Angels. Sure. Great likes harmonica to blow, player. Yeah, likes Great to harmonica. blow the harmonica yeah. on a break. And, and then there was, of course, the Catholic Nuns Band. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yes. And so I'm reading all of these on the air, and uh, the general manager did take offense to that when I got to the group of nuns playing harmonica. <laughs> That one, I just, yeah. yeah that, that, that one I did. That yeah. pushed the envelope? That pushed the envelope just yeah. slightly, yeah. yeah. And then when he walked in and there were a couple of contestants in the booth at the time, that was also a <laughs> <laughs> moment. The contestants were what? The 17th callers? <laughs> no. I would have a ride in saying, okay. where was the coolest place you ever played the harmonica? Uh-huh. And if uh-huh. I read it on the air, they would get one of these things. Right? Yeah. So anyway, but I, I had to do some personal auditions. You got to do it. Come on, it's What's show my business. job. These poor yeah. women. Uh-huh. Trying to, I'm trying to help you know, them out. Just help, help them, them out. out. That's yeah. Right. yeah. What do you got, Fraser? Well, mine was kind of an off-air experience. I remember uh, I was kind of in a battle with management, go figure, and uh, they asked me to, still asked me to do the uh, Marina Christmas Parade. Mm-hmm. So I was going to be the, uh, what do they call them, the Grand Marshal. Yeah. And they do it in boats, and you go around the boat. So I thought, oh, man, everyone from management is on the boat. It was me and all the management people. Yeah. So I was like, oh, i got to get out of here, and I'm on a boat. Yeah. So I knew the woman that was the bartender on the yeah. boat, and so she kept making me these drinks, and then next thing I know, I'm throwing all the food in the water. I threw like, <laughs> like a couple thousand dollars worth of food in the water. There's yeah. egg rolls bobbing up and down in the marina. <laughs> People were yelling, Merry Christmas from the shore. And I found one of those uh, bullhorns. And I was yeah. yelling, fuck you. <laughs> and, and next thing I know, I passed out on top of the boat, face down in yeah. my suit. Yeah. And I woke up. We were at the dock. And I go running off the boat and stop just in time to throw up on my boss's shoes. <laughs> so another uh, firing ensued shortly thereafter. <laughs> That's a good one. That's actually true. All right, you got one more there, Jim? You got one more. This is, right. this is uh, kind of hairy. Um, at KMET, I was uh, working at, at 10 o'clock at night, and I was always a very as high as I would ever get. I was always on time. But this one night, I had stopped at my dealer's on the way in, mm-hmm. and so I was running a little late. So uh, I get there, and I go get my headphones, and I'm running down the hall, and I hit the studio door and push it open, and I hear, and I'm looking at the business end of a 12-gauge shotgun yeah. pointed right there, held by an LAPD officer. Freeze! 
Okay, what uh, what's going on? And and <laughs> good the, question. Yeah. Well, uh, the late now I got hair down to here, and I look like what they you know don't. Like. Yeah. But the lady on the air went, no, 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 that's Jim, that's Jim. Apparently there'd been a death threat, and the cops responded to the death threat. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, I'm like taking a deep breath, and they say, oh, okay, okay, okay. So do you mind if we pat you down? And I'm thinking, oh boy, here it is. I said, why? They said, well, we want to make sure you don't have any weapons because we want to get it caught in a crossfire. And I said, oh, okay. Are you only looking for weapons? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go ahead. So they pat me down, and of course, they hit the lid right here. And they, uh -oh. the, I, lid. the lid. Oh, classic. Oh, the lid. A lid of pot, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. This is before medical marijuana, and uh -huh. we could all go and get it in a yeah. car. <laughs> So the, and I know this guy knew it was there, but yeah. he was there to protect me. Right. So, long story short, they said, well, "Okay, well, we got to give you an escort home." And I said, "Well, no, I got to do the show." And they said, "Well, get somebody to come in." And I said, "Well, what if that guy thinks the guy that's sitting here is me and he gets blown away?" Right. So anyway, they somehow figure this out with security. We go downstairs. There's like four cops surrounding me. We go down in the elevator, and they're all doing this thing, you know, and looking around and shit. And at that time, I had a. Uh, a firebird that looked like Jim Rockford's car, if you remember that. Yeah. So I get in the car and I'm holding the pot, and I now have four black and whites following me. And I hit Sunset Boulevard, and of course I'm going seven miles because I got the pot and seven cops. And I get to a, I get to a stop sign, boom, 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 knock on the. I look over thinking it's the guy that's gonna kill me. And the cop says, let me in, let me in. So this guy gets in, he jumps in, he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going home. He goes, punch it. You got a police escort. <laughs> you got a police escort. Punch it. <laughs> Jim Ladd, Fraser yeah. Smith. That's our show. Give me some music. Thank you, LA Podcast. I hope you had a nice time. These guys are legends. Jim Ladd, Fraser Smith. Veterans of real radio. You guys are great.